Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this is the 550th episode of the Other People Podcast. 550 episodes. This is the 550th episode all 550 episodes are offered freely. The entire library is offered for free. You can listen to everything free of charge. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, celebrate 550 episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Your support makes a difference. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Welcome to the Other People Podcast, the 550th episode of the Other People Podcast. Can you believe that? 550 episodes. I am Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. I've been here podcasting since 2011. Remember 2011? It's a long time ago. I have Leah Dietrich on the program today as my 550th guest. I cannot think of a better way to mark 550 episodes of this program than by having Leah on the show as my guest. She is a friend of mine. She is celebrating the publication of her debut memoir. It is called Vanishing Twins, A Marriage. It's available from Soft Skull Press. She was here not too long ago. She's a, a buddy from here in Los Angeles. She lived here full time up until just recently. Now she's kind of splitting time between here and the Pacific Northwest and I just could not be happier for her. So that conversation is coming up just seconds from now. A listener named John says, Hey Brad, I hope this finds you well. In your monologue for episode 549, the Andre the III episode, you read a letter from a man who asked you about the gender split of your episodes, which has spurred me to finally write a question that has been on my mind for a while, but which I'm sure I know the answer to, which is, how come we don't see any non-binary or transgender writers on the show? I'm a non-binary writer, and I've been a devoted listener for a few years now, and I love the show deeply. But I guess I'm curious to push the last listener's question a bit further in asking you if you ever proactively seek authors to try and diversify your list. As far back as I've listened to the podcast, I don't know that I've heard you talk to any non-cis authors, 
Eileen Miles might be the one since they do use they slash them pronouns, though I think they might have started using them since your interview. I don't follow Eileen that closely. Genevieve Hudson was a great queer guest. And from your conversation, I think how she uses the word queer does include gender for her. This has just been on my mind a lot lately, and the very binary talk answer to the question on the Andre DeBuse the third episode finally inspired me to ask you. I have a lot of love and respect for you in the show, and I just feel like it would be really nice to hear, to hear some trans slash non-binary slash genderqueer writers chat with you. Signed, your non-binary friend, John. Well, thank you, John. That's a, uh, a very nice letter. I appreciate it. And point taken. This is uh, an area that I could do better in. I, ha- I talked to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. I know I've talked to a lot of LGBTQ writers on this, on this show, though even there I could do better. But in terms of uh, trans, non-binary, gender, queer, that's an area where I, uh, I need work. And, you know, the way that I book the show, especially lately but always, is just uh, haphazardly. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. I don't have a set formula. People email me, whether it's a publicist or an author, and, you know, something comes across my desk is, is typically the way that it works. Or I get recommended something. Somebody's coming through town. That's another part of it because I like to record in person. And uh, especially over the past six months or so, I've been confined to very limited time slots, specific days and times that I'm available to do it in person because I have a pretty demanding day job. So there are different factors. It's not just like, you know, laziness or, uh, it's certainly not lack of interest, but I, well, I mean, I guess laziness, maybe I just haven't been doing a good enough job, but, uh, you know, there's just a lot of different things factoring in and pressing on me. And the truth too, is that I don't get solicited very often. Uh, you know, trans, non-binary, gender, queer writers don't reach out to me to be on the show. And I can't imagine if they did that I would, uh, I would not extend an offer if the book that they were publishing would, you know, would be of interest to, and the work that they were doing would be of interest to my audience. That's also a huge factor, you know, but I know, uh, I know my audience would be up for it. So I appreciate the letter. I'll try to do better. I don't mean to rhyme, but it happens sometimes. So thanks, John. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for listening. My guest once again. Oh, did I mention the election? Today's the day after the election. This episode goes live on Wednesday, November the 7th, 2018, the day after the 2018 midterm elections. Kind of an important day in American history. The fate of the republic hangs in the balance. I'm, I'm recording this the night before. Am I a little nervous? Uh, oh, yeah. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the fate of the Republic hangs in the balance. I honestly am done making predictions. Everything is so upside down and screwy in this country. And so many things uh, of value have been decimated. And so many bad people have uh, so much power that I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I think that's how a lot of us feel. And it's a little bit nerve wracking, I got to say. But I hope you went out and voted. I really do. And if you didn't, fuck off. Like, I don't know what it would take to wake you up. That's, uh, that's not good. So here we are. Or or where are we? As I'm uh, talking to you, please tell me something good happened. 
Or I guess it's possible that we could be in an excruciating state of limbo as we await the results of multiple California House races. The vote count process for which could extend into late November, early December. (sighs) My guest is Leah Dietrich. Her new book is called Vanishing Twins, a memoir. It is out there now from Soft Skull Press. Very pleased to have Leah on the program as my 550th guest. This is Leah Dietrich. Vanishing Twins came about out of two, not mistakes, but false starts. The first was a novel that I was trying to write that was based on two characters like myself and my work partner who features in Vanishing Twins. And I was, I just sort of had this idea that I wanted to write a novel about the two of us running away from our lives and our job responsibilities together because we were sort of fed up with our, um, lot as, uh, the breadwinners of our families. And I started to write that. I probably got like 30,000 words in. And then simultaneously at that time, my husband was living in New York and he had met the set of twins who, uh, he was doing like a photography project with. And I became kind of fascinated by them because they, I mean, and he was too, they were both architects. They had, um, moved from Greece to go to grad school together in New York and they lived together. They slept in the same bed at age 28. And we were just like, God, these girls are so weird. They're so like strangely close. But then I kind of had this urge to compare their sisterhood to my relationship with my husband, because I sort of at times had felt because we'd been together a very long time that our relationship had gone from lovers to sort of more sibling esque. And, you know, then we had been in this open relationship where we were living apart. And so for him to meet these sisters who were sort of doing, you know, their life together in a lot of ways, I, I just wanted to compare my, my marriage to their twinship. And so I started interviewing them because I thought I wanted to write a feature film that was about like a, you know, a male female couple who kind of fall into a, like a love square, if you will, with the twin sisters and comparing and contrasting their relationships. And so since I didn't know, I mean, I'm not a twin, so I was interviewing them. That to, you know of. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a part of the, <laughs> part of the intrigue of the book. Um, yeah. So I started interviewing them just to try to develop good twin characters, but I got so interested in this kind of like epistolary relationship that we were having of comparing our relationships and talking about love and talking about identity and individuality within a couple that I started to feel like, well, this is really the way I should be writing. Like I should be writing from my own life about this desire I have to understand the way that I've sought intimacy with people rather than trying to do something fictional with it, like a film or a novel. And so I abandoned both of those projects and started to use this interest in newfound knowledge and twins to look at my relationships that I had had with my husband, with this lover, um, while we were open. And then with my work colleague, all of whom I sort of saw as my twins. And you like had an impulse to find a twin or to believe that there was somebody out there who was your twin from childhood? Yeah. And I think it wasn't necessarily, I couldn't have labeled it as such back then until I kind of 
started working on this project and gave it that lens. But I definitely was the kind of person who always had one close friend, you know, even growing up. I I just felt more comfortable in that kind of dyad as I did in a group setting. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I also had this sort of fear of being alone. I wanted to have somebody to kind of hang on to. And likewise, I I met my husband when I was only 18 and we began this like completely, you know, immersive, merging, passionate romance with each other. And that felt very comfortable for me because that's just kind of how I had always done it, just been really intense with one other person. But then inevitably that, um, that intensity would become suffocating at a certain point. And so the pattern I had had was to feel like once that became um, just sort of impossible, like the, the closeness, I would go and find someone else to start the whole process over with again, this repetition. Um, and so, it, you know, in therapy, I started to realize that was like my pattern, but I didn't give it this until I read and started researching twins and then came upon this phenomenon of a vanishing twin, which is one in eight pregnancies do begin as twins. And one of the embryos fades away or is absorbed by the remaining twin or into the uterus. They they actually physically absorb. Mm -hmm. And people have sometimes, um, like a friend had told me a story uh, about somebody she knew who had a, like a tumor, a cyst that had to be removed. And it turned out to have like teeth and hair in it. So it was probably the remnants of this, you know, I've heard of this. Yeah. It's kind of gross, yeah. but also kind but of also cool. kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Or oftentimes, you know, if it's not absorbed into the remaining twin, it just kind of gets flattened to the wall of the uterus and becomes something that they said is almost paper like. So I imagine it like a, like a little callus or something, you know? Well, well my, uh, my friend and a uh, past guest on this show, Lenore Zion is a twin, but her, I want to say twin sister died, uh, in childbirth That's intense. and she's carried that with her, her whole life. Absolutely. Um, in like a really deep way, even though, you know, there's, they never knew, I mean, I guess like not a, uh, how do you call it? Uh, out of utero, they right. never really knew one another, but right. it's a very deep bond. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's all this research about, twin loss. And so I kind of became interested in, I mean, there's some sort of like out there research or not research, but people who believe that there could be, you know, real consequences to losing that twin, even at five or six weeks of gestation. And I don't, you know, I think that's interesting and I don't know whether I believe it a hundred percent or not, but I felt like this spark of, um, knowing when I read about that, that I was like, maybe that happened to me. Maybe that's why I've been pursuing these kind of twins throughout my life. That would explain it. And I think I just wanted an explanation and it became a really great tool for just organizing my thoughts around my experiences in terms of writing. Well, and I feel like too, it, it makes me wonder if like you have like double soul I feel, I think about my friend Lenore and I'm like, maybe she's like a larger soul than the rest of us. Cause she's kind of carrying on for her sister who didn't make it. Yeah. And maybe if you're, you know, if you're the sibling of a vanished twin, you somehow are a double person. That's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way, No. but yeah. And you know, I think too, I've had similar thoughts about, um, people who are bisexual 
or who like have like, you know, those dueling impulses, like mm -hmm. maybe they contain greater multitudes than people are just who are like squarely hetero or squarely homo. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. I'm like, what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm speculating that you might be a, like a, a double soul with, like, <laughs> who is, uh, you know, here to teach us things or something. <laughs> You're a super being Leah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So you, did you always, cause you've done different things creatively. Like you, um, studied ballet, mm -hmm. uh, you were writing originally for the screen. Uh, you've lived here in Los Angeles and then now you're, you know, you're literary. Like, can you talk about your creative evolution and like, was this writing impulse always there or was it something that you arrived at a little bit later? It was always there. Even when I was dancing, which was the thing that I started really doing seriously when I was it was later. I wasn't one of those kids that was like three years old in ballet. I was, I really got serious about it. I, I think I started in, you know, maybe third or fourth grade, but by the time I was in middle school, like eighth grade, I was doing it. I was doing ballet at a um, school that was attached to a professional company and I was doing it every day. And then I began to see that was a career path that you could, that you could be on because I, I saw the professional dancers, you know, that were in the company and I was just so passionate about that. It was all I wanted to do. So I never thought about any other career at that point. Um, like you wanted to be like New York. Yeah. Like a New York city ballet dancer or, or any of that, you know, I wanted to be dancing at that kind of a level too. And, um, and I always liked writing. That was the other thing, other creative outlet that I had in school. But as I became, you know, by necessity, more and more, um, involved in ballet. It, I just didn't have a lot of time for anything else. You know, I would leave school early so I could get to ballet and it was really my life. And so then when I, and where was this? That was in Connecticut. Okay. But um, like, like with like New York city adjacent. No, I grew up in a part of Connecticut that I be, that's like five minutes from the border of Massachusetts. So very rural and, um, very new England and less so sort of like suburban New York, Connecticut. And the ballet school was, um, in Hartford, which is like the capital of Connecticut. But, um, yeah, so I would drive like about a half hour every day from my little town to Hartford's not much of a city, but it had a professional ballet company at the time. I don't think it does any longer. It was but good enough. Yeah, it was great. And then in the summer I would go away and do like, you know, five and six week summer ballet camps at various ballet companies. Like I went to one, in, you know, in Philadelphia for Pennsylvania ballet. And I went to this other one in upstate New York that a lot of people from the city go to. And, and that was really fun to get away for that long, you know, and be on your own when you were like, 13 or whatever, but it takes a certain kid, like a certain temperament to be that committed to one thing. I feel like I was more distracted. Most kids are like, ah, like you can't get them to kind of focus on yeah. something to that degree and to commit to what you need to commit to, to be serious about ballet. Mm -hmm. So were you like a, a serious kid? I mean, you talk about, you know, you were talking about, um, dyads and sort of wanting to like hang on to somebody and have like one person. Right. And then you have ballet, which is this thing that you're sort of like uh, fixed on. Yeah. And it, it became very much my identity too. And I think I was really, that was comforting to be, to feel like I had a label for myself. Like I'm the, I'm the dancer, you know, at school for instance. And so was my best friend. So that was also helpful. Oh. You know, I, I, it's hard sometimes to separate like what was my actual impulse and what was my copying someone who I admired, let's say, but I did love it and I was good at it. So I did it. And, but then at a certain point, um, I, 
when I was a senior in high school, I, um, I auditioned for ballet companies for like the entry level job, which is called an apprentice, which is typically unpaid. Um, and I also simultaneously applied to colleges, but I didn't really want to go to college. I just wanted to dance, but I didn't get offers for, to be an apprentice at any company that was like in a city I wanted to live in, like New York or San Francisco or something cool. They were like just, you know, smaller cities like Sarasota ballet or like Cincinnati ballet. <laughs> Des Moines. Yeah. Where I was like, Oh my God, I don't, that's not what I want. So I thought, so I had applied to the school in Indiana. I went to Indiana university and, um, they had a ballet major, which most schools didn't like. You could major in dance, even at like Juilliard had the best, you know, dance program, but it was more focused on modern dance as many of the college programs were. So I went to Indiana and I majored in ballet and I thought, okay, like, well, be getting a couple of college credits while I'm still dancing, like almost, you know, full time. And then I'll, after my freshman year, I'll quit college and I'll hopefully get a better job in ballet than I was able to before. But by the time I finished that freshman year, I, I was better and I, but I still sort of felt like I don't, I'm not going to be as good as I need or want to be. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What do you have to have physically? Because I, I think of this in the context of like professional sports as well. This can actually kind of uh, grind me down a little bit or what's the word? You know, it can deflate me a little bit to think of like, there are just genetic things you need mm -hmm. in order to be an elite athlete. Yeah. There are just genetic things you need in order to be an elite um, ballerina or ballet dancer. Absolutely. Um, maybe there are just genetic things you need to be a writer or to be a doctor. You know what I'm saying? Like I, yeah. though these kinds of professions, like the non-physical pursuits tend to be associated with like, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the person who commits and works the hardest, you know, right. But with the physical stuff, it's sort of like you either have it or you don't, mm -hmm. or you have from in my 
in my own personal experience, I was, I had almost enough, you know, like I was like 90% there, but I just didn't have literally like a high enough arch to my foot that pointed in this very specific way. That was like the way that your foot needed to look to be considered like perfect and beautiful or, you know, just certain other little things like that. And yeah, it came down to feet in a lot of cases or, just what about height? Do you have to be a certain height? No, actually you don't. There's like very successful ballerinas that are super short, super tall. It doesn't really matter as long as you look like rail thin <laughs> and your body like curves in these particular ways that people have just decided is like the, you know, the only way to look as a ballet dancer. Could I do it? Do I have what it takes? <laughs> yeah, I, you might. <laughs> there's a For place... men, there's a lot less pressure to yeah. be all of those things, even in ballet. But it is an intense... I mean, I saw Black Swan. I know how yeah. intense it is. It's just like that. Is it? Yeah. Yes. I related so heavily to that movie. And even though there was those moments where it would, you know, go from... Um, something that felt super relatable to then like tipping over into this grotesque, like exaggeration. I feel like there was something where she was like pulling off her toenail or something, but it almost wasn't even unrealistic to me. And I was, you know, it grossed everyone else out, but I was like, yeah, that's what it was like. It's sort of an obsessive pursuit. Yeah. Like to a degree that, I mean, anything, if you want to be good at it, you have to be somewhat obsessive and mm -hmm. committed, but ballet seems like. And you are all in mm -hmm. and, and it's, I really was. it's so physically demanding, mm -hmm. but when you're, when you're really training, like I'm, I am kind of obsessed with like how strong and graceful and, uh, fit, mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's a place in LA called ballet bodies. Have you heard of this? Mm -mm. They even have like an exercise regimen now where people can do ballet. And like, uh -huh. I drive past it and I'm like, because I'm like so susceptible to like health trends and stuff. I'm like, is this the next thing? Is this the next wave? We're all going to be doing ballet. <laughs> well, there was a New York city ballet workout DVD back when DVDs that was for, you know, the general population. And my husband was like, I kind of want to do that, but I don't think I can. Like it's, I, I, I don't think I, I can be doing a ballet. Like Pilates is far enough for me. Or pure bar. I haven't yeah. done pure bar, yeah. but I'm like, should I be doing like bar classes? Yeah. I mean, it's probably really good for you. I can't bring myself to do any of that stuff anymore. Are I just you am not interested? Were you a good athlete generally? I never did any other sports because of the fact that I committed to ballet so early on that um, I didn't I didn't even have the opportunity or time. Like I, it wasn't that we weren't allowed to play sports necessarily, but I always remember even my mom or whoever telling me like, "Well, you could hurt yourself doing something else, so you don't want to mess up your." you know, career, your ballet potential. Like I was always, I never got to go skiing because it was like, well, what if you fell? You what know? if you what blew if you... your knee out? Or... Yeah. You know, so I had the fear of God in me for that stuff, which really bummed me out because I now as an adult, I sometimes feel like there are things that I wish I had tried back then, but I just, I didn't because I was worried about compromising my ballet body. Were either of your parents uh, dancers? No, no, neither of them were, um, in the arts or dancers, they, they're both the kind of people who are, um, they're definitely fit. You know, they're, they're not crazy. They're not like crazy athletes. They don't, they don't do anything too taxing, but they're just very like regulated and regular about their, you know, they, they take a walk every day or they, you know, so like, German, is it German? Is yeah. It, is it the Germanic? Like Probably, you think like yeah. just orderly and efficient yes. and yes. Yeah. yeah. They don't like, go crazy. Like, Oh, I'm going to run a marathon or, you know, 
They're but that's like, good. That's yeah. what you want, right? I think it is. For longevity, it seems like that's the way to be. Well, it's like in Okinawa where they have like a really high rate of centenarians. It's like you, they just garden. Yeah. They're it's out. a blue zone, right? Yeah, Do you know about zone. that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like all into that. But they're yeah. just like, you know, I think it's not that you have to be doing, um, you know, some rigorous like bar class or something. You just like use your body, move right. around a little bit and don't overeat. In the natural way. Yes. And don't like eat like 80% until you're full or whatever. Yeah. That's like the Japanese way. I know. Which I need to get better at. Oh my God, I'm terrible at it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so ballet was definitely, um, I, I never know how much doing a sport or something like ballet, how it shapes you, or if I just innately was the kind of person that wanted and liked that kind of structure and um, obsessive kind of dedication, or if it was cultivated by doing it. I don't really know. But, well, um, well, I think I like your that. social group... You know, especially when you're an adolescent, you know, you were very impressionable mm -hmm. and there's a, you know, parts of the book where you're talking about how you, when you're close to somebody will start to adapt their physical look. And like, I re I relate so much to that. Like I remember, and it doesn't even necessarily, um, have to associate with a single individual, mm -hmm. but just like whatever environment I'm in, whatever group of people I'm socializing with, I will start to mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I guess, I think that's kind of, you know, sort of naturally you're trying to fit in, but like I moved to Boulder for college and like, suddenly I was like wearing fleece and like right. growing my hair out and, yeah. um, you know, doing I all did that. that. I, cause I also lived in Boulder and I, uh, yeah, I got much sportier. Yeah. You don't want to like, I don't want to stand out. I know. I want to blend. Yeah. Do you, well, it was you like that, that bumper sticker people used to have. I feel like that said like, I want to be different like everybody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But I wish, I think in retrospect and I think I said, not even in retrospect, I think I wish still that I had a stronger sense of my own self and I cared less about blending. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for me, it's like, I don't want to like, um, what is it? Be, cons be conspicuous. It's mm -hmm. not, in it's not inconspicuous. You don't want to be conspicuous. I yeah. don't want to like walk outside and have everybody like be like, whoa, what's going on with that guy right. in the orange pants mm -hmm. or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. But, uh, if I felt like strongly about it or I, I had cultivated somehow some sort of like personal style that was very specific to me, I sort of wish I had the, would have the courage to, to act on it. Yeah. Do you know I, I think I do know what you mean. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. just, but I have a very strong impulse to blend. I don't like, you know, I guess I just don't have it all sorted out, but, uh, I'm now thinking of this documentary and it, it came to mind earlier when you were talking about. Um, you know, yourself, uh, in relationship to other people and especially in intimate relationships, uh, this documentary about Jane Fonda, mm, have you seen, seen it, it on mm -mm. HBO? Mm -mm. You should watch it. It's, it's not like a one for one, but it's really unusually honest. And I really enjoyed it and enjoyed her. Like she's a cool person who, yeah. you know, sort of like lived her entire life in the public eye, but in a way that's like honest. Mm -hmm and like warts and all. And she's done a lot of work on herself. And I don't know, just like I was really moved by it, but she was, you know, the, the movie's broken up into different acts where, um, she kind of goes through the big relationships in her life. So her marriage to Tom Hayden, mm -hmm. her relationship with her dad, mm -hmm. you know, Henry Fonda, mm -hmm. who was like this, you know, her mom suicided when she was 12. Oh my God. She was bipolar and like institutionalized, which I didn't realize. I didn't either. And then she was married to, um, what is it? Ted Turner. 
I think so. But it's basically, I think the arc of the, of the documentary is about her finally feeling good on her own, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and feeling comfortable in her own skin right? and not needing to define herself through a relationship. Right. Um, and I get that. Yeah. I relate to that so much, but then it also is always, I try to figure out what's the end goal. Like the, the end goal certainly isn't to be like this Island, you know, because we're people and we need each other. So how do you have, um, how do you have a kind of beneficial dependency with someone or like an interdependent relationship instead of a codependent relationship, I guess. I'm not sure if I'm using those terms perfectly, but, but yeah, I think for a period of time when I realized how much I needed to define myself through my relationships, my reaction was like, well, I just want to be fine on my own. But that just is like, that's a ridiculous thing to say because whoever, who wants to be alone? But I think that you know, in psychology, they talk about like being able to be alone in the presence of other people and that that is sort of, you know, something that that you mean? need to attain to be able to sort of hold on to the things that you're saying, you know, hold on to some sense of identity while still being in a relationship with someone else. And I think that, you know, it starts with like your mom, your mother, probably, you know, being able to do that in the family structure or yeah, I know. And I think that I, um, when I kind of realized that that was maybe more the goal, it seemed to be not that it's easier, but just a little bit, that seems like a better end goal than just, well, I'm just going to be, you know, just all on my own kind yeah. of like Ayn Randian, like self-sufficient. Yeah. You know, I, all I, of that. I think that's a fallacy. Yeah. We need each other. Mm -hmm. Like people need other people. I guess maybe there are some outliers. Like I'm thinking now of a conversation I had with an author and uh he did a book about this hermit well i mean my brain is so bad i just talked to this guy within the last year but uh i'll figure it out he he did a uh, a book about a guy who lived up in the main woods mm. oh yeah remember that guy right but it was like for 25 years yes. and like like had like two like one or one to three word conversations during that entire period where he like mm -hmm. passed somebody on a trail in the woods and was like hello boggles my mind but he did not and, and he lived in like extraordinarily brutal conditions because if he lit a fire then they would see the smoke and he would be discovered because mm -hmm. he was stealing provisions from a nearby mm -hmm. you know town or whatever yeah. and uh but he would be like the only kind of example that comes to mind of somebody who truly just did not want to be around people right but for the rest of us yeah. it's it's unrealistic mm-hmm and uh i guess like what your uh book and what we're talking about makes me think about personally is like i was really alone from the time i was like in my early 20s until i mean i don't know i don't want to make it sound like i was a hermit but like i wasn't in a like a relationship but for a few months my entire 20s mm. which that, is interesting i, I mean that's exactly the opposite experience that i had of being in a very serious relationship for all of my 20s and that seems like such a formative time and it's interesting to think about how you know, like you said, being alone during that time, do you feel like that helped you define who you were in some way or not? I think, yeah, I think like I was mostly like locked away in a room reading and writing. Mm -hmm. It's not that I was anti, I mean, I did go out, I have friends, I had a roommate, mm -hmm. you know, so I wasn't like an isolate. Were you living here at that time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went to graduate school. But just like was flying solo, like no intimate relationships. I wasn't like great at dating. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I didn't, you know, and what I, about like friendships with men, for instance, or like women? Um, well, I mean, living here, I didn't, I had some friends, you know, that I had known in college. I had a roommate, a female roommate, like platonic and we were buddies. Mm-hmm. And then when I was like 29, you know, published novel and then met my wife right around that time. Mm-hmm. But I think like sort of, you know, that decade was me sort of figuring, trying to figure out who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm, you know, and then I, I met my wife and we've been together ever since. So it's just interesting. It made me think like, Oh wow. I kind of had the inverse, Yeah, you know, where yeah. I was flying solo, but, um, let's talk about, you know, you getting this book into shape and then selling it because I know having known you for a while mm-hmm. that it took you a period of years yeah. to work, work it through. And the style that you're working in is one that I've often said is like a favorite of mine where you're working in this kind of pointillistic literary style. Like I don't even know how to define it. Like little miniature essays. Yeah. Fragments. People like to talk about that, but. Mm-hmm. And so was that always your intention or is that how it just sort of manifested over time? Yeah, that was my intention because those were the books like you that I really, really enjoyed. And, um, got a lot out of there's some they're the only books that i read multiple times just because I, they lend themselves to that they don't take a long time to read and i think i've i like what you've said i think before about something being short but weighty you know and i really liked that and um i'm trying to think like maybe whenever bluettes came out i just was so floored by that book as so many people are and i i really that was like the moment reading that book where i was like i this is the, like the epitome for me. Like, I want to write a book like this, that, that feels like this. Um, and then it was many years, you know, until I started writing my own book, but I did really do so with the intention that I wanted to write something that kind of had that movement to it that was quick and, um, still, you know, that ha- that utilized some outside sources. I really love that because I loved like learning, you know, because I reading that book, for instance, or reading any of Maggie Nelson's work, I love like that you feel like you're in school, you're kind of learning and you're, but you're also getting a personal story at the same time. And you're getting it in a way that, um, you know, can be really musical or lyrical and just moves quickly. So, and pulls no punches. Yeah. And so that was my, that was like my goal. And I, um, when I came around to the idea of, so I, I didn't go to grad school, so I have no like formal training of, of creative writing. And I just was taking classes here and there. I took, you know, short story class at UCLA extension. And I took, um, then Eden Lepucky's group. I don't know what to call it, but like writing workshops, LA, I had taken a, you know, a workshop here or there, like a poetry workshop with Sarah Manguso. And I took, um, and then when I decided I wanted to write that this was the topic I wanted to write a book about the, the, this period of kind of trying to find myself in my, you know, late twenties, early thirties through, through these various relationships. And I came upon this idea of the vanishing twin and that I, um, I started working with one of the teachers from writing workshops, LA, just one-on-one because I couldn't go to class after work and like read everybody else's work and feel like I could be a participating member of a workshop. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, and to then write. (laughs) So I, I started working with this woman, Chris Daly, who's amazing. And we would meet like every week I would give her five pages a week. And it was actually, I think she that said, well, maybe twins could be your 
you're blue, you know? And I, she's like, or not. I just, that was just a thought. And I'm like, oh my God, no, that's, this is how I can write this book. Cause now all these things I've been thinking about and working on, you know, individually, like so many of those small little sections in the book I had just written, you know, in years before I started seriously working on it as a book, as poems or as, you know, I didn't know what they were, but they were just sort of things I was writing along the way. And then slowly as I started writing more, I was pulling all of those things in and kind of deciding what made sense in the narrative and what didn't. And so when you started to work, just so people listen and get like a sense of how the composition came together. Yeah. Cause I think, especially if you're working in these fragments, you know, there can be some, uh, confusion about like, how does this all come together? Are they, or like, are you writing them sequentially? Is this kind of like, you really collaging it where you have pages and pages and pages of this stuff and then themes emerge and then you sequence it after the fact. Yeah. When you met with Chris Daly, how much had you written at that point? Like, like how f- 20 pages at 20. the most, maybe okay. less, maybe 10 to 20 pages. And they were probably 20 pages, let's say of made up of maybe five or six fragments, you know, something that was a page long that was about that ligature, the O and the E that are smashed together. Um, there was like, yeah, this just sort of musing about that and how that related to how I felt identified with that ligature. And then there was another part about the, the woman that I had been dating and there was, you know, so there were just all these things that at the time didn't feel connected. And then when we decided, you know, when she helped me see that, oh, well, there's this pattern or there's this, you know, kind of similarity in that they're all about partnerships or twinships or, you know, couples in some way, shape or form that then that allowed me to, it gave me a prompt to write new ones. And it also helped me, you know, dig back and comb through old work and see if there were things that worked. But then, yeah, to your point, it was certainly not a process of writing chronologically really I, I had to continually keep resequencing them. And I, I honestly feel like there's this program called Scrivener that I started to use. Yeah. And that was the way that it allowed the book to start taking on more of a shape. Because when I was working in Word and it was all linear, I couldn't figure out how to like copy and paste things and move them around without getting lost every time. Whereas in Scrivener, you have you know each chapter, or each fragment was its own little document. And then you could literally drag and drop them and move them around over on the left side of the program. So I could just try it out all the time and figure out how, and then, or I'd, or I'd make a note, I'd like create a blank one in between two things to say, oh, I need to write a thing about this thing here. And I would kind of leave that for later and yeah, just leave myself spaces where I knew I needed to insert something. And that helped me a ton in terms of getting enough. And then I had so much material and then I had to like call it way down Uh, at a certain point. And at what point did you, I mean, I know that early on with, with, uh, your writing teacher, you sort of, I like landed on this theme of twinning or twins. Mm Uh, but at what point did other main themes of the book emerge? Were they there from the beginning or was it something that was kind of a discovery process as you wrote and suddenly you were like, oh, so this is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Well, the ballet thing in particular was one that I didn't realize that I really didn't think would be part of the story because I thought this is a story about me, you know, searching for this quote unquote lost twin in a variety of relationships, my husband, this lover, my colleague, and then finding myself. But 
I just kind of kept writing about ballet because I'm one of these people where I don't, I try not to censor myself as I'm sitting down to write. And so if something was coming out that didn't feel related to what I was working on, I just was like, I don't care. I'm just going to, I can throw it away if it doesn't. No one's going to see this except me. Yeah. And so I kept writing about ballet because it's, you know, it's one of my main experiences. It's one of the sort of defining characteristics of my, of my youth. And I couldn't write about my, about my like early life without writing about it. And so I, I was a sort of frustrated because I felt like it didn't have anything to do with the twinning thing. And at a certain point I realized that it did, you know, in a lot of the things I remembered about ballet were about looking at myself in the mirror a lot and dancing in front of a mirror and that doubling that was happening there. And the way that, so that's the way I always dance yeah. personally. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then also just the way that, um, some of the ballets that I was dancing in or, you know, knew of as a young dancer, like were stories about men and women and relationships that I obviously had internalized in some way, you know, about like, I don't know, there's a lot of dancing yourself to death too. (laughs) So this sort of like annihilation of the self that was part of also, I think my impulse sometimes when I was trying to turn myself into someone else of like, not knowing what to do in terms of an identity. Do I have one? Am I, is that innate? Do I try to take on someone else's like a character and am I, am I performing? So it was all sort of related to ballet at the end of the day. Um, what is uh, dancing yourself to death? Like that's a part of ballet. <laughs> yeah. There's like two ballets that I talk about in the book. One is this ballet Giselle. Actually, she doesn't dance herself to death, but, um, the main character Giselle is, um, she's like wronged by her man and I think he cheats on her. And so then she dies because she has a weak heart. And so she like, she goes mad. There's this famous scene called the mad scene that, um, where she just goes crazy and she dies. And then in the afterlife, she, um, falls in with a group of other female ghosts and they go and find the guy and force him to dance himself to death. And then in this other ballet, The Rite of Spring, which is like based on a Stravinsky um, score, the the main the main like arc of the storyline is that there is this you know tribe and they are enacting these rites of spring, you know, and that the central part is like finding a like a sacrificial, not necessarily a virgin, but like you know a young woman to sacrifice for the rite of spring. Um, and in, in the, in the ballet, the way that they kill her is they like make her dance herself to death rather than like stabbing her or something. So that was, that was the last ballet I ever performed too. And I, um, I loved it so much. It was like, it's the most incredible piece of music and it's just sort of like this wild ballet and, but at any rate, yeah. So that you died in the ballet, I was not the sacrificial, um, main character, but I wanted to be, (laughs) of course. (laughs) So I want to talk about relationships and sexuality, which is a big part of your book. Yeah. And it's a big part of identity. Mm -hmm. You know, I think those three things are kind of like circling one another. Um, and having like some confusion and feeling like there's a part of your sexuality that was, um, repressed for a good part of your life and then wanting to explore that and, and, then having that actually manifest a little bit in the world. Can you, can you talk about going through that process? 
because you, you, you do have to feel, I would imagine as you, um, externalize that in a serious way for the first time, like it's, I mean, I'm only imagining cause I've, I've not gone through that, but it's like, you got to feel like an entirely new person somehow. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that was a part of, you know, beyond the sort of interest in seeing what it felt like physically to like, let's say have sex with, you know, someone of the same gender. Um, it was very much about identity. What does it feel like to be in a relationship with somebody with another woman? What does it feel like in public? How, how do people look at you differently or, you know, and, and how do I feel differently myself within the context of that relationship? So I was just very interested in all of that and wanted to see how it felt. And, um, and I think that what was complicated to me was that I felt this external pressure to then, um, to label it and, and, and to say, well, if this feels right to you, um, does that, then that means that you're gay and you have to do this forever and that's it. You, you know, you're done. You don't get to go back or something. And I, like you've crossed the line, right? You know, it's like, oh, okay. So if you like being in a relationship with women, then, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the truth or something like that. And, and I think luckily now, you know, cause all of these experiences I'm writing about in this book happened like almost 10 years ago. And I think the landscape is so different now that if I for was the, for the good, yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. I think if I was going through the same questions about my identity now, I think I would have been a lot less stressed about, about having to, you know, what did it mean? How do I have to choose? Is this group of, you know, is this new group of like women that I'm hanging out with that are lesbians going to reject me because I'm not like a full lesbian or, you know what I'm saying? Did like, you, did you talk openly about this confusion with them? Like, Hey guys, <laughs> by the way, it's a little bit, you know, uh, gray or I what think it, everyone knew a lot of people. I mean, everyone that I knew at that time knew that I was in an open relationship and that I was married to a man, but also dating a woman or women. And I felt a lot of um, skepticism and from people on every side, you know, like that, that somehow I was trying to have it all and people were really upset by that. And how dare you? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, and I don't know. So it was, I didn't feel like I, w I got a lot of like, good for you. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, it's an, it's an unconventional choice and yeah. it's a brave choice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you talk about being true to yourself and being honest with yourself and being honest with your uh, spouse or partner. Um, you know, the, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people bury this stuff mm -hmm. and they go through their entire lives with it buried. And I really feel like, uh, sexuality is a lot more fluid and gray than most people either are willing to admit or realize it it's absolutely like it, is. I mean, that is my experience for sure, that it is very fluid and like you said, a gray area. But I think I was, it was very hard to, um, to really accept and believe that about myself because of the fact that I was getting, I felt a lot of outside pressure to see it more black and white. You know, it's like, well, are you or aren't you? Does this mean, what does that mean? You know, to be very like, just to oversimplify it. And I think it is one of the most complex things about human experience. And to me, it makes no sense that it could not be a, an evolving, um, 
an evolving like feeling, you know, and based often on context and, you know, individuals that you meet. And what about, what about the idea that like, if you, uh, do have a vanishing twin or did have a vanishing twin in utero, you ever think like, well, it was a boy. Yeah. And there's a masculine side, you know, there's a lot. Yeah. And I thought about that a lot too, as I started to kind of like organize this book and think through these things, that was one of the things I was like, well, what if the twin was a boy? How, what would that mean? And if I'm look, am I looking for a a boy? Am I looking, you know, and if it was a girl, am I looking for a, like a, you know, a girl? I don't know. That, that was a really appealing part of the twin thing too, especially being that like I went on this sort of quest to find myself through these other relationships, which I don't think was really the way necessarily the best way to do that. Um, but it was the way that I chose at the time. And open marriage. Uh, I've had Melissa Broder on this program mm-hmm. and uh, she's a pal and she had an open marriage for many years. And it's a fascination, I think, not only to me, but to a lot of people. Like, how does that work? Yeah. You know, and she, I remember, um, was telling me on the show, like, you know, there were rules, you know, like, uh, she wanted to know everything. That was the rule. He had to tell her everything. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know nothing. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me anything. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like something that if it is going to be successful, you do have to set some parameters on the front end. Oh, Absolutely. So how did you handle that? I think that was um, very similar to what she is saying. You know, we we kind of would both say what we felt comfortable with. And I wanted to know everything. And I don't know that he did. But he didn't necessarily tell me what he wanted. So we were just like, okay, we'll just tell each other everything. And that was really hard in a lot of ways. Um, And then, you know, along the way, I would say that the period of time, I mean, we've been married since the earth cooled yeah (laughs) shift in my seat for a minute um we've been married since 2004 and been together since 99 essentially so a really long time so the period of real open relationship was probably about five years in the middle you know early to middle part of that and during those five years i would say that we kind of renegotiated those boundaries like continually of like, okay, maybe I don't want to know everything. Or maybe I, you know, tell me, you know, tell me if they're, if you're going out with somebody, but you don't have to tell me any details or, you know, and then it would also be on the, like, just telling what you knew. It'd be like, we would, we would try to create boundaries about what was acceptable. Like, oh, you can like, don't have penetrative sex with anyone, but you can do anything else. Or, you know, like we would just kind of keep making these rules where we both sort of felt comfortable. So then we could go do whatever we wanted to do because we knew we weren't breaking the rules. Um, so yeah, I think it's all just about like creating rules that you feel that you both feel comfortable with. You create paranoia. Are you ever like, is this really like, like, is he playing by the rules? Right. You know, like, or is she playing by the rules? Like I can imagine how it could create like a lot of questions. You have to have a, like a high level of trust, I guess. Yeah, you do, I think. Um, and it's exhausting. It's really, really exhausting. And I think that that's why I don't um, think that I would probably try that kind of relationship again. I just don't feel like I have enough, um, especially now with a kid too. Like I just don't have enough time. And it, <laughs> it's a lot, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> it's really, really exhausting to, to feel like you're trying to do it ethically. Um, you have to be like 
you know, they always say like communication is the most important thing in a relationship. So it was just like constant communication about these boundaries or about how, how are you feeling about this or that, you know, and trying like all the checking in that I literally don't think I had time for anything else, especially because at the time about, you know, that I was writing about, I was living in LA and my husband was living in New York too, which made it a lot easier when we were living in the same city in the same house. It was a lot weirder and hard to kind of have other people in our lives um but then when we moved apart it was like sort of out of sight out of mind a little bit sure which was helpful at the time i think we just needed that we were so young when we got together we needed to feel like we could live sort of on our own and you know but then um but then so he was living in new york and my other like main partner was living in london and so i was just like constantly in this weird cyber, you know, lit like life where my entire life existed in these instant messages and Skype with each of them. And then occasionally I'd see them like each, you know, once every couple of months or a month. And yeah, I just didn't have a lot of time for anything else. And it was a weird, I mean, it's funny when I watched that movie, um, that Spike Jones movie, her, I related so much to it because it felt like the same thing, because even though there was a real person on the other end of those, you know, um, technologically mediated experiences. Like, I don't know. It, it was, it, it felt very similar and made me really sad when I watched that movie that like, that's what my life had kind of become. Um, and it was the kind of thing that could only have happened in that particular period of time of, you know, where technology allowed me to kind of carry on these multiple relationships that were sort of real and sort of not real and virtual, um, and when I stopped, you know, having, and when I, we became monogamous again, my husband and I, that's when I started writing this book and finally felt like I had both the time and energy in my life to put all of that creative, you know, desire and impulse into something that I felt like I could be proud of and have to show for, you it's know, an education. Yeah. I feel like you went through an education. Yeah. And then now, you know, I could synthesize all of that into something that I can hold onto and that is truly mine. And that's what was really important to me because I felt like I was trying so hard to find myself in these relationships, but it wasn't until I kind of went through those trials and realized that I kind of kept coming out the other end, still feeling like I needed another person or some other person. There was always going to be that. And then when I grounded myself in telling my own story, putting it down on paper, and then knowing that hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be able to hold that book in my hand and be like, this is my mirror. This is who I am, not half of a couple or half of this relationship or that relationship. And, um, Likewise, for people often ask me, well, how do you continue to, you know, express your queer identity, for instance, when you're in a relationship with a man? And I, you know, when you're not like having a relationship, like a romantic relationship with someone else um, of the, uh, you know, the same sex, let's say, or gender. Um, yeah, it, it, I didn't know how to do that. I was like, I, I have, still have these feelings inside, but how do I, how, how, why am I allowed to claim this or that? But then when I wrote it down, I realized like, oh, I can claim it in words that can, you know, this is here, this will stay. And that can be how I sort of express who I am in writing, as opposed to having to put that onto a relationship, because there's another person on the other end of that. And to have them be continually playing a role in you trying to define yourself is also hard for them. Sure. So, yeah. 
And then what about sharing like such intimate parts of your life, um, publicly in a mm-hmm. book and like having friends and family read it and mm-hmm. having, you know, knowing that it's out there and it's you out there. Mm-hmm. How has that process been? Like, I mean, I'm surely you were anticipating it and we're fully aware of what you were getting into, Yeah, but there's also some things that you can't know until it happens. Mm-hmm. So what's that been like? It's been, um, it's been surprisingly positive overall. I would say that, uh, earlier in the process of writing the book, like when I had a first, I I remember talking to my therapist and saying, you know, I'm writing this book about these experiences, me and my husband, like, am I obligated to like share these things I'm writing with him? And she was like, no, do not share them with him right now. You're just going to censor yourself. You're not going to write something good. Um, wait until you feel like you have like the whole thing and then say, here's the thing. Like, what do you, you know, what do you think? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so I did that. Um, and I had worked with like Sarah Mangusu is my mentor. I worked with, by her. the way, writing a book of like pointillistic personal nonfiction, you could not ask for a better mentor than Sarah Mangusu. Yeah. I was like, she's the one I, yeah. I, 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 she does it almost better than anyone. And I, how did you, how did you land on that mentor relationship? Through writing workshops LA, actually, I took a one day poetry workshop with her. Oh, right. And, um, and then afterwards, I just loved the way she taught so much. Even in just that one day, I was like, I want to maybe work on some poems. And I asked her if she would take me on as sort of like a, you know, a private student. Um, and she's like, yeah. And we worked on some poems for a little while, but then I was like, eh, I don't really want to, I don't think I'm a poet exactly. I really wanted to write a memoir, but I didn't know about what. And so I was like, someday I hope to write a book. And if once that happens, would you, would you work on it with me? And she's like, yeah. And then, you know, maybe two years later I was like, okay, here I am. I've got it. I got it. Um, and so I had worked on, you know, I had, after I'd finished a draft, I gave it to her. She gave me like a, you know, a manuscript critique. I also showed it to another friend who was in an MFA program and she gave me one too. And, um, and then I showed it to my husband and he was like, you know, not that happy with it. He didn't feel like I had portrayed him accurately, which I totally understand. You know, these memories are so, um, they're just so personal. The way you remember something can change from moment to moment, you know, based on the life that you have now. And certainly the way two people remember the same set of events are vastly different. So I, you know, that was really tough because he was, you know, he's an artist, so he knows about this process and knows the importance of, you know, like putting out, putting your stuff out there. But so he was like, this is very beautifully written. There's so many amazing passages, but you know, it's hard to read for me and I don't, I don't love it. And I, but I also don't feel like, you know, I'm not the audience for this book other people are, are going to read this book. It's not just for me. So I think you should send it out and try to get an agent for it. And I was like, Oh, you know, I felt so much gratitude to him for being so understanding. You're, but lucky, I also, you're lucky he's an artist. Yeah. You know, I really felt lucky, but I also just didn't feel great because I was like, you know, I still, it's hard. The person that you kind of care the most about, you don't want to like upset them too much. You know, you know, and you also don't want them to be like, yeah, I'm like kind of five on a 10 scale on this one. Yeah, You want them to be like, I love it. I love this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I sent it out and I had, you know, I queried probably like, I don't know, five or six agents. And 
I got a lot of really nice rejections, um, many of which had like so much feedback, which I, I would say two or three of them were very similar feedback. And which was, which was sort of like, I'm trying to remember specifically, but, um, I think they all felt like I needed the, the characters to be a little bit more full and fully rendered. And so I felt like, okay, well that, if I can find a way to do that, that's going to hopefully answer, you know, my husband's issues too. And I remember that one of my, the other woman that had um, critiqued the manuscript originally, who was reading it as fiction, interestingly enough, and didn't know me that well. So she, you know, because at the time I, I kept toying with, should I call it, call it an autobiographical novel? Should I call it a memoir? And either way, it was going to be the same content for me, but just about what to call it. And so as she was reading it, thinking it was fiction and talking about the characters as though they were truly just fictional characters, she was like, you know, why does she stay with him? And I was like, oh, I have to figure that out. I have to figure that out for the book to be successful, but I also have to figure that out for my own life right? because this is my relationship. And, you know, even though I had been in a lot of therapy throughout the period of time that we were in the open relationship, I don't think I had really ever asked myself that question. You know, when you open up a marriage and you see other people and they, each person might do something, you know, kind of different for you. But if you stay with that primary partner, like, why do you? And I didn't know. Um, and so that was my main, uh, sort of the thing in the back of my mind as I continued to revise the book over the course of the next, let's say year and a half, I went back, I had saved all of our, um, instant message, um, like transcripts from conversations we would have during the time we were in the open relationship, living on opposite coasts. Anytime we would have a really long eye chat that was, that felt significant, I would save it just thinking like, Oh, maybe someday I want to refer to this for something. Cause I just save lots of stuff. You know, I journal and I save some email. No, I don't email anymore, but you know, yeah. So, isn't it, isn't it interesting though, how in the writing of a book, there are these blind spots that tend to be like, there's like, pain there or mm -hmm. deep, uh, uncertainty. <laughs> we, we sort of, it's amazing how good we are at avoiding these things, Absolutely. no matter how honest we think we're being on the page, no matter how much we feel like we're not censoring ourselves or we're pouring it all out. You hand it to somebody else and they just go, well, wait, what about this? And you go, Oh, that <laughs> I don't, well, I don't uh, know. I don't want to deal with yeah, that. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. That's <laughs> Otherwise the thing. I would have written about Otherwise it. Otherwise <laughs> I would have said something. I know. You know, but then that's the thing that you need. That's the place you need to go to. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so I, I went there by, um, combing back through all of the correspondence that we had had during the time, you know, because I wanted to make sure I was really like finding his voice, you know, during that time and my voice, and I could do it by literally reading these transcripts of conversations we had had. And it was funny in that I couldn't, um, the way that I had saved them, they would pop back up in like the iMessage program. And there was no way for me to copy and paste the whole thing and like put it in a document. And so I had been like skimming them, I think, as I was, as I had been referring to them earlier in the process, like just as research, I was skimming them. And so I, I made this project for myself, which was partly out of like, you know, procrastination. Like I didn't know what new stuff to write. So I was like, I'm going to transcribe every one of these conversations. And some of them were two and three hours long. So you can imagine how long that would take to transcribe. And it, um, 
it was torture, you know, and it, but it felt like a penance or something. Like I was really, I wanted to like torture myself and go back to that place and try really, really hard to figure out what it was. And in doing so kind of a parallel thing emerged where I realized like how much dialogue we had had during that time and how much we had like really tried to allow each other to grow. Um, even though it was so painful. And I was like, that's why we stayed together. You know, it's like, because we were both equally willing to just keep like doing this work. Do you think you, I mean, I guess it's all speculation, uh, but had you not gone through this period of learning and opening and exploring, especially since you started your relationship so young, I'm sure it's occurred to you that like, wow, had we not done this, I wonder if it would still work. Oh like, yeah. You almost needed that period of ventilation and to like go out and try these things out. Otherwise you wouldn't, you would always be wondering Yeah. and it would be, you'd feel that sense of suffocation mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have grown. Like this is what, you know, as unconventional as some people may find it, like this is what you guys needed in order to grow and sustain your relationship. It sounds like. Yeah. And you know, Esther Perel talks a lot about, um, I don't know if it's in that book, Mating in Captivity or in her later book about infidelity, but she says that most people in the Western world will have like three marriages or three serious committed relationships in their life. And some people will have that, those three marriages to the same person. And I definitely feel like that was, has been the case for us. And we sometimes joke about like, are we on the second or are we on the third? Like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, you, you kind of have to, I think, especially if you want to stay with the same person, you know, you end up really resenting them if you feel like you can't grow as a person. And so when each of you is growing kind of individually, that automatically kind of changes the relationship and turns it into a new relationship, which I think is um, the only way I could see being in a long relationship with somebody as exciting and not stifling, you know? Well, you, you want, yeah, I mean, it, it's unnatural to not grow as yeah. a person as you move through life. Right. And I find, uh, being in a long relationship that there's still so much mystery mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. Yeah. Like who wants to just feel like they know everything. Right. And if you get to that point, I'm sure it's like stultifying, like, oh, well, so this is it. But like, there's so much that's unknowable about a person. I think that's actually a fallacy anyway. Anybody who feels like they know everything about whoever they're with, you know, you might want to reassess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you might be missing like a big part of the picture, but yeah. And uh, in fact, actually one of the, there's this other book called monogamy by Adam Phillips that I, um, am really, I feel really indebted to both in terms of like the content, but also the form it's also written in aphorisms. And one of the things that he says about monogamy, this beautiful little quote is suspicion is a philosophy of hope. So when you're suspicious of, of your partner and think that maybe they're like cheating on you or something, that there is like a hope in that, that they could, you know, that they would have the potential or that they have all of this mystery or these unknowable things inside them. And that I think accepting that, um, makes that person seem so much more interesting or desirable. Whereas I think it's, it's very common for people to just shy away from that, or you, you just want to shut that down or not entertain that possibility. But then I think that's a really quick way to making that other person just feel very boring to you. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing that comes to mind is that I think there are probably some fundamentals that apply to any successful human relationship that's intimate. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways that it can look. Totally. And your book speaks to that. And I think sometimes 
people can feel confined to a certain outcome or a way that things are supposed to look based on how uh, intimate relationships are mediated to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really unrealistic. Like the, the, the way that love is defined in, uh, at least for, you know, for you and I and people um, close to our age range, like not exactly accurate. Yeah. I don't think All that the like movies. the Hollywood, uh, you know, the Hollywood version of love versus like what it's actually like to be in a long-term relationship are pretty disparate. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people who go into it either, you know, young, immature in some way, immature at any age, or yeah. just like, you know, with a blind spot, all of a sudden they, you feel that gap and you go, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it's something most of us move through. You get into a long relationship with somebody at some point, you realize that it's, there's real stuff to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say like relationships are work. And I think they are from a communication standpoint, you do have to, you have to make an effort, Yeah. but it shouldn't be like some horrible drudgery. No, you should want to make it. Right. And I always, <laughs> I always would sort of like imagine that there was a, you know, a, a balance, like a scale of like, is it, is the work pleasurable enough or is it drudgery? Like you're saying, and as long as like, it's, you know, the pleasurable is always sort of on the upper side, then, then you're good. Then you're good. Well, are you working on anything else? Do you know, like having gone through this book, like, especially since you were, um, you know, exercising demons or working through so much of your personal existence. Uh, I imagine that like on finishing this book, it was like, Oh, like, were you empty or do you have more to say? Or do you feel like you're going to be searching for a project that has like less to do with you personally now because you've sort of done that? Like, yeah. or do you want, do you want to go deeper? No, I want to do more. Um, I'd like to really try to um, explore things that I'm passionate about or have questions about, but not necessarily using just my own experience because A, I don't, I don't know that I have enough experiences you know, since having, since the ones that I wrote about in this book or, or that interest me to like make another book about that. Um, but yeah, I, I've never, I've never written, I mean, I've written fiction, but only very short. And so I just, I feel like it's a challenge that I want to give myself to write something that's not based, you know, completely on my own story, whether it's a novel or like a TV show or a film or whatever, but I, yeah, I just think that's that's the next goal that I have. But there's always the possibility that you could draft like 30,000 words of it and then be like, actually, you know what? This is Very a memoir. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's not an uncommon story. Yeah, but you that's know? fine, right? That's still part of the process. Yeah. So are you working on, I mean, do you have words on page or are you at this point just like taking I, this book out into the world and um, enjoying I'm it? I'm taking this book out in the world and trying to not um, be too, like have my attention be too fragmented. Um, I'm trying to just give it as much as I can to, to have people, you know, know about it and get, do it as much justice as I can before I'm, before I sort of move on to something else. But, um, but yeah, I have an idea for, for, I think what is a TV series, but I don't know how to write a TV series yet. So, and I also didn't know how to write a book before this. So I'm like trying to teach myself, um, how TV, to do TV that. easier. That's what I am hoping. It is <laughs> shorter. Certainly. I, mean, I don't mean to diminish, but I mean, between a book and a script, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. It's just, it's yeah. easier to write a script. There's just less to do. Right. And I feel like, um, yeah, but it's about, um, 
it's I don't I don't have anything written yet, but I'm doing a lot of interviews with um, like birth doulas and you know like midwives and people who work in child childbirth natural childbirth is like my sort of passion ever since I had my own daughter like naturally and kind of um yeah I've just become really passionate in like wanting to advocate for women having you know a good childbirth experience and um and I think doulas are fascinating people and characters and I'd like to I thought that I wanted to maybe be a doula or a midwife and that I would quit advertising and pursue that path but then once I had a child um with a midwife who had her own children and didn't really want to get up in the middle of the night and come to me (laughs) I realized like oh maybe I don't really want to do this this is a hard life but I would love to write toward you know a character who does that work because I'm so interested in it so we'll see how that turns out well, I'm really happy for you. Thanks. I'm glad to see you. Maybe I'll be seeing more of you in LA. Yeah, maybe. That, that's the rumor, possibly. It's, yeah, it's still all very in transition. Okay. But well, yeah. congrats. Thank you so much. All right. There you go. That's Leah. Her new book, her debut memoir. Is this, it's called Vanishing Twins, A Marriage. Am I correct in calling it a memoir? I'm now second-guessing myself because it's one of these books that defies easy categorization. Vanishing Twins, a marriage. It's nonfiction. File it under nonfiction. You know what I mean. It's a personal exploration of a lot of different things. You heard about it in the conversation. It's available now from Soft Skull Press. Leah Dietrich, Vanishing Twins. You can find her on Twitter, at Leah Dietrich. You can find her on the web at leahdietrich.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, letters at otherppl.com is the email address. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. Go get the free Other People app. It's the best way to listen. You just get it on your phone. New episodes automatically appear. It's magical. It's incredible. So, like, what are the polls saying? The polls saying are the Democrats uh, are supposed to take back the House. They're the overwhelming favorites, and they are uh, equally unlikely to take control of the Senate. I believe it's like an 85% chance that they take the House and a 15% chance that they take the Senate. I don't trust anything anymore. I've lost all trust in numbers. Nothing means anything anymore. Uh, I don't like thinking about it. I'm in the garage where I watched the uh, 2016 returns. This room is where I experienced one of the great traumas of my life. I need to burn some sage. I want to have an election night party in 2020 and hopefully try to exercise the demons. Drive the dark spirits away. Let everybody have some healing. Maybe I should have some Molly on hand. We can all do some Molly. Just middle-aged people on Molly. Some Gen Xers just on Molly. Everything's fine. It's going to be fine. We're all good. America's safe.